give me a sign. As I said last week, we are going to start this series related to the Lord's Supper. And before we start, in fact, tonight is going to be actually an introductory lesson to just sort of get our mind, I hope, in the right direction. But before we do that, I, I, let, me, let me say this, because I know that no doubt there are a lot of times folks wonder uh, about the, uh, the time element regarding the Lord's Supper, how often we ought to do it. And we'll talk about that later on in one of our lessons. We'll talk more extensively about it. But uh, let, let me just kind of sum it up tonight so that I can... Uh, uh, so you, you'll know what's on my mind because a lot of times we go a lot longer than maybe somebody thinks, well, we should. It ought to be more often or whatever. But let me tell you this. I believe with all of my heart that the Bible teaches that that in the observance of the Lord's Supper, that it can be a matter of life and death for people. And there are certain times that I just cannot be comfortable as a pastor saying, okay, let's schedule the Lord's Supper. Uh, for one thing, I know there are some people that in order, in, in, instead of dealing with their particular sin or whatever is going on in their life, they just won't show up. But that doesn't solve anything. That's not the way to deal with it. And I know a lot of times there, there are people that will just go ahead and partake of the Lord's table and they don't care what's going on in their life. And they might not care, but I'm telling you, I do because uh, it's a very important issue. And that's why I want to make sure that we understand it. Then my hands are clean before God and then we'll, we'll go from there. But by way of introduction, I want to call your attention to three different portions of Scripture and we're not going to actually deal much with any one of these verses, but I, I want to mention all of them. The first one is in Titus chapter 1, and, uh, and let's see, in verse number 5, is Paul is writing to Titus, and he says, For this cause left I, left, uh, left I thee in Crete. There's a little island out there, the island of Crete. I'm sure he probably would have rather been somewhere else, but Paul left him there. That was his assignment. And here's the purpose that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, those things that are lacking. And he goes on giving him instructions as to the church and how it ought to function and the things that need to be done. Now, that is addressed to a specific person, a single individual, a preacher with the name of Titus. But now we come uh, to the book of Jude, and in verse number 3... Jude says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you... Now notice what his subject was going to be. He said, I, I made every effort to write unto you, notice, concerning the common salvation. In, in other words, he was going to talk to them about uh, you know, the, the, all of the things involved in the matter of salvation. Uh, all of the glories of it, and so on and so forth. That was going to be the center of the topic. But notice what he said. He said, It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you. In other words, I had to change my plan. Instead of writing what I had intended, 
He says, It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith. And that word faith speaks about the body of truth that we believe. Earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And then he goes on after that telling about those false teachers and so forth uh, uh, that had crept in unaware and bringing their damnable doctrines and what have you. And then the third, the, the third portion of Scripture is found in Hebrews chapter number 8. And here as Paul is looking back, as it were, into ancient history... And he's speaking here concerning the old Levitical priesthood and God's dealing with Moses when he was in the mount. And he said in verse number, verse number five, who serve unto the example and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou makest all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. In other words, the Lord is telling Moses, I want you to do everything exactly as I say. When you build the tabernacle, I want it so many cubits long, so many cubits high, so many cubits wide. I want you to use this particular material for this article of furniture. I want you to use this different kind of material for something else. So God left nothing to the discretion of man. God dictated, as it were, every single minor detail of the tabernacle. And the point is, just as the the Old Testament tabernacle and later the temple, just as they constituted the house of God for that age, even so the Lord's church is God's house for this age. He no longer dwells in temples made with hands, but He dwells in the midst of His people. And, and the same thing is true. We've got to be certain that we do our very best to make to make all things according to the pattern. Well, where is the pattern? Well, the pattern's right here in the New Testament. In the, basically in the epistles. Because the epistles are addressed, you know, letters to churches and uh, telling them how they ought to function, how they ought to operate. Originally, I thought tonight that I would take time. I, I carry in my Bible a, uh, uh, some notes that I had written down, and I'm not going to read all of this tonight. I, uh, I read it a few years ago, and I'm not going through it again. It starts out uh, having to do with a, uh, with a survey conducted by the George Barna Group of the 12 largest denominations in America. Uh, and it tells us only 41% of all of the adults in those denominations believe in the total accuracy of the Bible. The Catholics had the lowest percentage at 23%. Only 40% of all of those surveyed believed Christ was sinless. Only 27% believed that Satan is real. And then he deals with the Baptist, and there's several other statistics from some of the, some of the major Baptist leaders. And, and I mention that just to say this. We've been sabotaged, as it were, in our generation. Something awful, something terrible has happened, and there's never been a time, I don't believe, when so many professing Christians are so confused about, about what the Lord's church is and about the doctrines of the Lord's church. Now, we're not going to talk about all of that tonight because uh, we want to narrow this down to where we live. 
And so we're talking about churches and independent Baptist churches in particular. And a lot of people are confused about what makes one church different from another. And, and of course, as you know, churches during the centuries have been divided up into different denominations. And uh, that really hasn't helped. You know, at first glance, it might appear, well, that's the helpful thing to do because these folks believe this and these folks believe that and those folks over there believe something else a little bit different. So we'll just put labels on them. you got the Presbyterians, you got the Methodists, you got the Pentecostals, you got the Baptists, and on and on and on. So we just get them all divided up. Uh, but that really doesn't work because what happens is within each one of those groups, you have what we'll call subgroups. In other words, even among the Presbyterians or Methodists or any of those that I've mentioned, there are many subgroups because there's, there's no one particular denomination you can look at and say, oh, well, they're Methodist, I know exactly what they believe. You don't have a clue if that's all you know. You don't have a clue what they believe if all you know is that they are Baptists because there are a lot of doctrinal differences within each one of the denominations. But let's talk about the Baptists, for example, and we all know there are many different kinds of Baptists. There's the Southern Baptist, there's the Baptist Bible Fellowship, there's the ABA, the BMA, almost said the NBA, but they're not in it yet. But you've got all of these different groups. And that, listen, that's just to name a few. But Here's the point. Before any of these groups existed, all Baptists were independent, unaffiliated Baptists. Now, I realize if you want to go way back in history, there was a time when, when of course, we were not even called Baptists. Our enemies gave us the label, Anna, that's A-N-A, it means re, re-baptizers. That was a term of derision against us. Those re-baptizers over there. And we were hated and despised and saw the name Baptist stuck. And, uh, and that's all right, by the way. Because it's a good name because it identifies us and our beliefs, as it were, in regards to baptism. And, but, but before the Southern Baptist Convention and all of these other associations and what have you, there were no such thing. It was just Baptist churches. That's, that's all that existed. And, and, and by the way, we've always existed, identified by our beliefs. We've always existed since the time of the apostles. And I could prove that to you by not even quoting a Baptist. I could, uh, I could let Methodists and historians and Presbyterians and people of other denominations that by their own admission, there have always been churches like the independent Baptists today all of the way back even to the very time of Christ. And so, you know, that's what they're saying about us. So whenever I say that about us, you know, some people get all offended like you think you're better than anybody else. No, that's not what I said. I just said there's always been churches like independent, uh, unaffiliated Baptist churches. Uh, churches that stood on their own two legs, if you please. Well, today there's a lot of confusion about 
what an independent Baptist church is. You go out here on the street and somebody says, what church you go to? And, you know, you say, well, I, I go to Lakeway Baptist Church. Oh, do uh, you know so-and-so? Uh, no, you don't know him. Why? He, he was a big shot in the Southern Baptist. Well, we're not Southern Baptists. I mean, they're total, totally shocked because as far as they know, that's all, all there are. Just everybody's a Southern Baptist. That's all some people know. And uh, somebody else you know is affiliated with the Baptist Bible Fellowship in Springfield, Missouri, and so forth. And so the question tonight where we need to start, I think, in this regards, and talking about the importance of the Lord's Supper, uh, is what is an independent Baptist church? What is an independent Baptist church? In other words, what are the distinctives that make us an independent Baptist church? My dear friend M.L. Moser several years ago wrote a, uh, wrote a little track uh, in that regards. In fact, I've got several friends that's written several different articles and tracks on it. And uh, many, many of us guys have preached on that subject in Bible conferences. It used to be a very common thing to have a Bible conference and hear somebody get up and preach about the church. In fact, every single Bible conference, I mean, you mark it down, there was somebody going to bring a message on the subject of the Lord's church. There were entire conferences devoted to the doctrine of the church. And uh, nowadays, we, we don't hear anything about that whatsoever. I mean, you could uh, attend the average so-called Baptist church today for the rest of your life, and you'd never hear a message about what constitutes a church. What, what does it mean? And most people believe we're Protestants, which nothing could be further from the truth. We were protesting the heresies of Rome before Martin Luther was ever born. We're not Protestants. We've never been Protestants. The Protestants hated us as much as they hated the Catholics. And Luther persecuted us and so forth. So we're, we're not in any wise whatsoever uh, Protestants. Uh, but what are we? How do we know what an independent Baptist church is supposed to look like? Well, I'm going to try to put everything together in four simple headings tonight uh, for you to think about. Number one, an independent Baptist church is a self-governing church. A self-governing church. By that, I mean that it is free from any outside control or membership in any kind of a man-made organization. We're not a part of the, you know, the county association. We're not a part of the Southern Baptist Association. We're not a part of the Baptist Bible Fellowship. We're not a part of any of those things. And, uh, and that's important, by the way. And, and i got to tell you, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I just can't help it. I get a bit irritated at somebody that's been in this church or some independent Baptist church for 10, 15, 20 years, and they've heard over and over again, you know, why we are what we are, and they get a little bit mad at me, or maybe mad at you, or somebody else, they don't like what we're doing, and they jump up and go out here and join a church that is totally different, and and a church that uses a different version of the Bible, and and contrary to everything that we stand for. Uh, That troubles me that people would do something like that. Now let me say this. I've got dear friends in, uh, that, that are Southern Baptist and Bible, uh, uh, the Bible Baptist Fellowship and, and different, different groups like that. Uh, they're, they're good people. 
they really are. But that doesn't mean that we ought to operate like them just because they're good people, you see. Now, somebody says, well, you know, we're a part of an association, but they sure don't tell us what to do. Boy, I've heard that so many times. Let me tell you, you get all of the politics involved. And this is why several years ago, I was talking to somebody about a preacher today, in fact, and uh, and was asking me about this preacher. I said, yeah, I, I, I know all about that preacher. And that's why I cut all of my ties with a particular group several years ago. I don't want to be identified with certain people. And I hear, I hear Southern Baptists, for example, complaining about, boy, our big national convention's coming up and we're getting ready to vote and we got to get this president and that president in and so on and so forth. And you get politics involved. People running for office in an organization like that, you have every kind of corruption imaginable. But here's my point. They can tell you all they want to that we're not controlled by anybody. But anytime you send your mission money, for example, off to the Southern Baptist Convention, and they tell you what percent's going to be taken out for administrative costs and what percent of that money is going to go to the missionary and so on and so on, so forth. In fact, a lot of those mission boards dictate exactly how much money that missionary can have. Well, I don't know about you, but I believe with all of my heart, if God's sending a man to the mission field and he goes out here to the churches and he raises his funds, if God blesses him with 10000 a month or 1000 a month, whatever it is, that's what he ought to get. Who, who are these people to tell, to tell these people that they, you, can only, you can only get so much? You see, that, that ought to be none of their business. But the point of it is, whenever it gets right down to the nitty-gritty and they begin tightening the screws down, don't you tell me that those churches are not affected in what they do by what the big shots in the convention are saying and, and basically telling them what to do. But let's assume that's not the case. I know a few real hard-nosed preachers that, I mean, they don't dictate to them. Uh, and, and, and I understand that. But by virtue of association with, with a man-made organization, something Christ had nothing to do with, that's been critical of us ever since they started, to even associate with people like that, that have professors that deny the infallible literal Word of God and up here teaching seminary students and so forth, uh, and they're supporting them... Uh, just associating with people like that is something that we ought not to do. What's wrong with being like the early church, just an independent, unaffiliated church? And so we are to be self-governing. There's nobody else dictating to us what we do. Whenever we decide on an issue, you know, and here we're, some, some matter comes up, and we, we all know we're going to build a building, going to do this, we're going to do that. Uh, we vote on it. And every member gets a vote like everybody else, whether you're 8 or 80, black, white, doesn't make any difference. You don't have to have a high school degree or college degree or anything. If you're a member of the church... Uh, you get one vote just like I do, just like everybody else does. I mean, that's the democratic process that we, that we use. And, of course, we're to seek the will of God in regards to these things. But we are self-governing. Secondly, secondly, another characteristic is that the church must be sound in doctrine. In other words, upholding what the Bible teaches and upholding the Bible is the divinely inspired Word of God. 
Now notice what Jude said, earnestly contend for what? For the faith. What faith? The faith which was once delivered unto the saints. We cannot, we cannot call ourselves a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ if we're not sound in doctrine, that is, sound in teaching. If we don't believe what the Bible teaches, we're, we're not a true church. And one of the signs that we are a true church is that we are sound in doctrine. We are self-governing. Number three, we are, we are, let me change that around. We are a church with a Bible-centered program. You see, it's not just all about what we believe. And, and, and I'm using this because it's important that we understand that what we do and how we do it matters to God. Some people, you know, say, well, it doesn't make a difference how you do your mission work, whether you send them to a board or what, what difference does it make? As long as they get there and as long as we're supporting them with our money, what difference does it make? It makes a big difference. God never ordained a mission board. He started the church. The only institution on this earth that has the authority to do the work of Christ is a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. A mission board doesn't have that right. And yet whenever they go out of a mission board, that mission board can turn right around, like I said, dictate the amount of income that they get. They dictate whether they're allowed to go to the field and which field they go to, how long they can stay, and everything else about them. And, and, and that's none of their business. They do not have that authority to do something like that. So what we believe is important, and we are to earnestly contend for what we believe. But how we operate, how we do what we do also is very important. And one of the distinctives of independent fundamental Baptist churches down through the years has been the fact that we operate in a Bible-centered Way. That's our program to do it as, as it was done in the Bible. And if you read in the Bible, in Acts chapter 13, for example, and other places, you'll find that everything went through the church. It was the church that sent these men out. It was the church that ordained them. It was the church that had the authority to discipline them and oversaw the work and so forth. So everything was done under the canopy of the church. That's where the final authority is in the church. Now, an independent Baptist church then ought to be self-governing. It ought to be sound in doctrine. It ought to have a Bible-centered program. Do it God's way. But then, fourthly, it ought to be a church with distinctive emphasis. Now, I had to mention this category because of the fact that, that there are some important things. I'm just going to mention three, but there's several distinctive emphasis that are important to independent Baptists. They may not be important to other people in the, the, denom- in the you know, mainline denominations, but they're important to us. And so these are the three things that I'm going to mention. The distinctive emphasis of an independent, fundamental, unaffiliated Baptist church. Number one, a regenerated church membership. In other words, only those people that have personally, consciously received Christ as their Lord and Savior have a right to church membership. Our membership is not open to just anybody and everybody. That doesn't mean we don't love people. But if someone comes along, and, and, and listen carefully, 
many years ago when I was pastoring in Tennessee, and this was back during the time, I mean, whenever the blacks were turning cop cars over in the street and burning houses and looting and rioting and all of that stuff was going on back there. And uh, there, there was an awful, terrible division between the blacks and the whites. Well, in trying to force this matter of segregation down everybody's throats, some of the blacks literally, and as you know, I'm, there's not a racial bone, racist bone in my body, and I mean that. But, but some of the blacks got the idea. Now, I want you to listen carefully to this because it's going to happen to us in a different way that I'll mention in a minute. And some of the blacks got the idea that they're going to bring this thing to a head, and so they started going to the churches, white churches, where they knew they were resented there, and they would go there and apply for membership. And, and, and of course, if you didn't let them in, you, I mean, you're going to have big trouble. We're going to have the same thing in regards to the homosexual issue. You mark it down, it's coming. Just as soon as they get a little better foothold and what have you, the day is coming. If the Lord doesn't come first, we're going to have some homosexuals walk in here saying, we want to be a member of this church. And whenever we have to tell them that we cannot accept you because there's no evidence that you've been born again because you're living a, 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 an abominable lifestyle we're going to end up in court. I probably end up in jail. But, you know, whatever. Look, I mean, we don't just let everybody into the membership. You've got to be born again. The church is for God's people. It's not for just anybody. And certainly, it's not just so you can attain racial equality or something like that. That's crazy. So... A lot of churches, it doesn't make any difference. Somebody can walk down the aisle, you know, and say, I want to join the church, and all, all, all the preacher can think of is, wow, our attendance is going to keep going up, you know, I hope he's a good giver, or this or that. They don't ask them if they've really been saved, or, or anything else. So, there's the matter then of a regenerated church membership. Now, that doesn't mean everybody that's a member of an independent Baptist church is really saved. But it means that they're not going to be able to join the church until until they in some manner express the fact that they have received Christ as their Savior. Now here's the, here's the second thing, and you're going to find this may be a little bit odd to have this in the list of the distinctive emphasis that, that you find in independent Baptist churches. And that is, not only is there a regenerated church membership, there is scriptural giving. Scriptural giving. And this is more important than what you might realize. Remember, as I said a few minutes ago, how we operate, how we do what we do is very important to God. We are to operate according to the pattern of God's Word. And when we do that, we find that churches are supported by the free will offerings and tithes of its members. That's the way the church is to be financially supported. I'm telling you, you would be shocked if you realized how many churches today are run like businesses and corporations. And by that, I mean they, uh, they, they've got investment properties. 
They've got all kinds of investments in the market and this and that. They've got all kinds of money-making ventures. That's one of the reasons whenever we have a car wash, whatever we have. I, I tell preachers when they come and say, can I put my books out? And I say, yeah, if you, as long as you don't sell them. You, you know, you can put them out there. You, you can say this is how much it costs to print them. Do it on a free will basis. But don't just put it out there and if, if you're going to sell it, take it somewhere else. Uh, we, we don't want to get in the business of selling stuff. That's not what we're about. So we have a car wash or something. It's on a donation basis. We have a fundraiser here in the church, you know, for the young people to go to camp. That's that's good. But it's on it's on a it's it's on a, uh, a what donation basis? Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Donation basis. Now it's not we're going to charge you so much for a meal. We're not going to operate that way. And we're not going to depend on making and buying investment properties and all of that kind of stuff and investing in the stock market. It, it, we support the church by the free will offerings and the ties of God's people. The third thing, and, and this is going to start narrowing it down to where we'll get really on track, and that is that that one of the one of the distinctive emphasis is the fact that not only do we require that people be born again if they're going to be a member, and not only that the church is supported by the offerings and the ties of God's people, but a statement of faith. A statement of faith. Some of you, of course, remember how it was years ago. Every time you walked into a Baptist church, you had, I used to call it the scoreboard. You know, it was the attendance board and how many you had in Sunday school and how many in worship and what the offering was and what have you. Can somebody tell me what was up there next to that or maybe on another wall somewhere? Church covenant, exactly. Every church had a church covenant and every church had a statement of faith describing what we believe. Now, going back in history, there was a time that basically you said, I'm a Baptist, okay, everybody knew what you meant. But but nowadays it is so confusing, it is all the more important that we have a statement of faith. Because saying we're Baptist doesn't go far enough. We, we've got to go beyond that, right? And let, me, and let me tell you this, removing the name Baptist doesn't solve the problem. I, tell you, happened, I heard I read an example of that just today. This fellow in Tennessee, in fact, he was a, uh, this, this guy was a musician. I mean, a big-time musician there in country music in Tennessee. He got saved. He'd been out of the will of God several years. He went back to church. Boy, this church was just going great guns. He was so happy, so involved, so thrilled. And uh, all of a sudden, and this fellow happens to be a writer, and uh, the pastor invited him out to lunch. And uh, so they went out to lunch, and the pastor told him, said, uh, you know, now just between me and you, he said, I, uh, I'm, we're, I'm going to start taking the church in a different direction. And he said, we're going to start by changing the name, and we're just going to call it the People's Church. Just the People's Church. Because the name Baptist, you know, might offend people or something like that. And, uh, and anyway, he described the story of what happened next after that and the different changes that began to show up in just a few months in that church. The, the, the type of preaching, everything changed until finally this fellow couldn't take it any longer and he had to leave. I do not for the life of me understand how anybody can be ashamed of the name Baptist. 
I mean, that look, that's, that's like a banner that we ought to hold high because it identifies what we believe. But we, we need, we need, and we have, of course, we have a statement of faith describing what we believe. Now, the reason it's necessary, again, is because there's so much confusion about a lot of things. It seems like that, uh, that most of the confusion has to do with, with either baptism or the Lord's Supper. Those are the two and the only two ordinances in the church. And uh, over the years, what some people don't understand is when we think back to our Baptist forefathers and the persecution they went through, all of those people that were slaughtered, do you realize that they were not being killed and persecuted because of their belief concerning salvation. It was the doctrine of baptism, basically. That was the bone of contention, and they were hated and they were despised. Well, you have the two ordinances, and we, we need, and, and we have a very clear explanation of what we believe about those. As a pastor, I have the obligation to do my best to inform the church, educate the church, and remind the church concerning what we believe about the Lord's Supper. It's one thing to exclaim that you believe something. It's another thing to explain why you believe it. And I remember whenever I first started pastoring, and I sure didn't have all of the answers and I remember going to my pastor, a man that I loved dearly. He loved me dearly. And I'll never forget going to him. And I had a question that related to receiving members. And, and I'm not going into detail, but it had to do with baptism. And, and I began to ask him. And, uh, and I realized this guy is more confused than I am. And we had an old man in the church there. All I, I ever knew him by was Brother Reddy. Old Brother Reddy that lived next door to the church. And... In fact, Brother Reddy, when I surrendered to preach, made me a big, long bookcase. He said, you're going to need this. Great old man. And Brother Gene explained to me, he said, uh, I'm going to tell you something I've never told any other member of this church. And that is, Brother Reddy has never been baptized in a Baptist church. And I said, well, why is he a member then of the church? Well, it all amounted to the fact it was an issue that he didn't want to deal with. And when the church started, he didn't know it. He didn't want to hurt the old man's feelings and so on. Boy, that, listen, that's a pitiful explanation for compromising what the Bible says. I mean, we, if we don't stand where the, where, the, where the Bible stands, we might as well just throw it all away. So when it comes to baptism and the Lord's Supper... We need the best we can to stand where it stands and not just to listen to what somebody else says about it, but what the Bible teaches about it. And that's why we're not going to have just one lesson. We're going to look at four or five uh, different lessons over the next several Wednesday nights. Just because you read something that was on the bestseller list at the Southern Baptist Bookstore, that doesn't make it true. We need to know. We need to be like those folks in Berea. And this is a great scripture there in Acts 17 and verse 11. And those people in Berea, it says, They received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so.
Don't, and you've heard me say this before, don't you ever believe anything just because I say that it's so. I've been wrong before. I could be wrong. You believe it because you're convinced that's what the Bible teaches. And, and, and look, I don't want to be wrong. And somebody says, well, what, what, do you think you're right about everything? Well, if I don't think I'm right about it, I'm going to change it. So I, let me just put it that way. Do you think you're right about all of these doctrines? <laughs> I, I hope it might sound prideful. Yeah, I think I'm right. Why would I get up and teach something and preach something if I didn't feel like I was right about it? What am I supposed to do? I mean, get up there and say, well, I don't have a clue. I don't, I don't know what that means or anything. And uh, you, you can't operate that way. And uh, that doesn't mean I think I'm smarter than anybody else or better than anybody else. So that's the reason for these messages. And we're going to talk basically about four things. It may take five messages. We're going to talk about the institution of the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk about the purpose of the Lord's Supper, the elements of the Lord's Supper, and the proper observance for the Lord's Supper. And so those are the things that we're going to be talking about and we'll... We'll try to go slow and deal with it as thoroughly as we possibly can. And I want you to pray. One of the things I want you to pray for is the fact that when I look out here tonight and I see you folks, Bea felt so bad about, in fact, she's supposed to have a meeting tonight and she had to cancel the meeting as she was hurting so bad she had tears in her eyes and, and laying down when I left. Uh, and I know she wants to be here. I know there are others that want to be here. They really do and they can't be here. But let's pray, let's pray that God will do something to generate interest in the heart of a lot of people could be here, but they don't, they don't care, don't want to be, and they need to be. And so I want you during the course of this, especially to be praying that God will lay it on their heart to come and be a part of, of our study. Well, isn't it wonderful that we can even think about observing something such as the Lord's Supper? that speaks about the shedding of His precious blood for our sins. What a, what, a, what a wonderful Savior. That old song, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen. And, and we have such a Savior. And this ought to be the most wonderful time in, in, in you know, uh, for every Christian. Uh, the most wonderful time whenever we gather around the Lord's table and celebrate what He did for us. Let's all stand together and